Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today, it was my pleasure to interview David Rosmarin, and he's a medical doctor, and he's working at Harvard Medical School as a psychologist and an associate professor. He is also the director of spirituality, and he has a mental health program at McLean Hospital, and he is the founder of the Center for Anxiety. And you can find out more about that at centerforanxiety.org org. Talking with Dr. Rosemarin was really interesting to me. There were a lot of aha moments, things that I've noticed in the college students that I taught for 25 years at California State University that just make sense. And one of the things that I think is really amazing about his work is that he was able to see people in the clinic in real time during the pandemic and create a theory that he could then test and see if what he thought he was seeing really was the truth, and then find the empirical research evidence and collect the data and write a peer-reviewed paper that will be coming out soon to prove that this was actually happening. And, you know, that whole process was basically if people already had some preventative mental health tools to work with, they could handle the stress of the pandemic much better than those people who'd never had any kind of preventative training in how to handle stress and anxiety and fear. And the pandemic hit and they had no idea how to handle it. And their stress and anxiety and fear was not moderated. It just went off the charts. So to see that in real time with six or 700 real-time clients, and then to create a theory about it, and then to get the empirical data to support that, that is phenomenal. I don't think we see that often enough. We have the researchers over here in the labs, and we have the clinicians over here, and the two don't always talk. And even if they do, it's not cohesive. So that was one of the things that really impressed me about Dr. Rosemarin is that having these preventative skills for anxiety are the key. So that is so interesting to me because those of us that do yoga on a regular basis, it can act as preventative medicine to strengthen the nervous system, to challenge ourselves, to create different perception. There's many things that regular yoga practice can do to help set you up to deal with the inevitable problems that will happen in life and anxiety that will inevitably overcome all of us. But we have that ability to kind of up our game even before it hits. So I think that is such an important message that Dr. Rosemarin gave us today. Another really cool thing that he talked about is this ability to kind of lean in and admit to ourselves and accept right up front that life is going to be unpleasant. The workout is going to be unpleasant. Things are going to hurt. And that is part of being human. And once we accept that, we have the first step to be able to transcend that. So I think a lot of times, you know, in yoga, we talk about attachment and aversion. Well, he's saying the more we have aversion to this, the more we try to push it away, the worse it's going to get. And that instead we should just accept our fate as human beings that do suffer. And as soon as we can just get a handle on that and start moving forward, we're going to be a whole lot better off. That was a real key point for me. 
He talked about self-compassion. He talked about some of the secrets to overcoming and dealing with anxiety. And I just really appreciated this interview because it had such a practical nature to it. And I think all of this is completely laid out in his new book that's coming out called Thriving with Anxiety. October 2023 is when it will be released and you can pre-order it now. I tell you on the podcast where to find that and it's in the show notes. And it's just an entirely new way to look at anxiety that it's not something we have to deal with or manage, but rather we can kind of get ahead of it and lean into it. And it can actually make us more resilient. Now, I did ask Dr. Rosemarin a really hard question about power and privilege and resilience. And he gave me the most surprising answer, which this is something I'm going to have to really unpack and think about. And I think you'll look forward to hearing the answer that he gave about three quarters of the way through the interview. So I welcome you to the podcast today, and let's get started with Dr. David Rosemarin. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. And we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Good morning, and it is my pleasure to have David Rosemarin with us. Thank you for coming today. My pleasure to be here. Would you like me to call you David or Dr. Rosemarin? Please, David. <laughs> okay. All right. You have so many credentials that I don't want to assume that we could be that casual. So you have this new book coming out called Thriving with Anxiety, and it's due out in October 2023. I would just like to hear the origin story about what made you want to write this book. Sure. The, yes, the title of the book is Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. And it's about the positive side of anxiety, one that we do not speak about enough in the world of mental health. And I'll tell you the story, the background. At the beginning of the pandemic, the clinic that I run, Center for Anxiety, had six or 700 patients at the time. And I got really anxious because all these patients under my care and under the care of my staff there were all these early reports of mental health spiking and mental distress spiking rather and financial concerns. And I was very nervous, like what's going to be with everyone. And to my surprise, amazingly, the patients who were in treatment for the pandemic, so people who started in January, February, or even the beginning of March, 2020, when the pandemic hit, so the end of March, beginning of April in the United States anyway, where the clinics are located, those patients did not have a spike in anxiety at the beginning of the pandemic. Interesting. They continued to have a decline in their levels of anxiety and depression and other symptoms as well. But it was the new patients coming in who had never had treatment before, who were in some ways experiencing significant anxiety for the first time that were caught off guard. Those individuals were indeed having that spike and it was more complicated to deal with it. And what I realized unpacking this was that 
in many ways, when we have anxiety and we deal with it and get the tools and skills, it actually can protect us amazingly and make us more resilient against dealing with other stressors, even out of the blue stressors, which are very significant. So it sounds like you're talking about preventative mental health. Very much. Learning to deal with this before something big comes along and throws you off. And then you have those tools to kind of lean into and use. That's exactly what it's about. Wow. And was this anecdotally that you, you saw this difference in these two types of patients? Or were you actually collecting data at that time? We have collected data on it, and we've submitted a paper describing it because it's such a unique finding, I think. Um, And it's currently under peer review, so we'll see uh, what my colleagues have to say about the science. But this is definitely demonstrated in our data statistically. We're not just talking about a handful of patients. This is in aggregate in my data from the late 2019 through the end of 2020. So in some ways, it, it sounds like you're saying that, you know, there are some positive functions of anxiety. And one of them that I read about is enhancing your connection to self. And we talk a lot about that in yoga, that if you're connected to self, you have the ability to be more resilient no matter what comes at you. So tell us more about enhanced connection to self. Sure. But at the outset, I want to say that anxiety is real and anxiety can be very distressing, and very debilitating when we don't know what to do and when we don't practice tools and skills. So I'm not going to tell you that anxiety is always something that makes people to thrive. In many cases, it can be very serious and it does need to be addressed in a serious manner. But when people do get those skills, when we have anxiety and we learn how to do this, it can enhance our relationship with ourselves better than had we not had anxiety in the first place, I believe. And when you say when they have the tools and skills, can you talk a little bit about, because to some people that may be very foreign. They may not even understand the things you can do for yourself. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you a couple of ideas from the book. One is when people feel anxious, there is a natural tendency. And I think our society increases this tendency to our detriment, demand more of ourselves Mm-hmm. And to be less aware, to be less kind and compassionate when we're having a tough time. Mm-hmm. Almost like those are the moments where we're like, no, the bar is here. The bar is even higher. We have to perform. And if we're not, and we're struggling, those moments become not just moments of distress, but actually severe, significant distress. As opposed to learning the skill of self-compassion. And understanding that you are going to be anxious sometimes. Yeah. And on those days, it's not a great idea to start a new project, to push yourself harder than you normally would. It's a good idea to scale back a little bit, 10%, 20%, 25%, not to completely let go of everything, but not to push beyond your limits on that day because you're already ramped up and your adrenaline is already surging. And those are the moments for self-compassion and kindness while continuing to maintain our cadence day to day. That's just one idea of a a general skill that can be implemented. And when you say self-compassion, are you referring to the work of Kristen Neff or are there other researchers out there also that you appreciate? 
Kristen Neff does get mentioned in the book and uh, she's, you know, really wonderful and does incredible work. Yes, there are others as well who do compassion work. But what's nice about Kristen's work is that you can actually measure how self-compassionate you are towards Mm. yourself. And if you can measure it, you can change it. So her approach is very novel and definitely gets, uh, gets mentioned. And I like that she has eight week classes. I mean, I think so many of us are perfectionists. We are hard on ourselves. We don't give ourselves that space. And I think to, you know, maybe you're going to do something like this too with your programs, but to offer like a training program and how to have self-compassion, I think that's really not only novel, but super important. We should be learning that in kindergarten, but we don't. I love what you said about kindergarten. Uh, I think the educational systems should certainly could benefit from these kinds of programs. And another thing is industry and in business, the business setting where people understand that sometimes your emotions are going to fluctuate and people can come back when they give themselves the permission to struggle on certain days. But if we always hold ourselves to a certain standard, it's very difficult, ironically, to maintain that over time when we're not accepting of our struggles. So when I was doing my research on you, I found a beautiful picture of you and maybe colleagues for at the Center for Anxiety. And most of the people in that picture looked really young. Do you work with a lot of young people? Our staff are varied in age, but we do have a fair number of young folks at, at Center for Anxiety. Some look younger than they are. Um, Maybe they're managing their anxiety well. <laughs> it just looks like a very vibrant group of people. It is a vibrant group, uh, you know, you know, youthful and vibrant. And I think part of what's really nice about the practice is it's understood that people have bad days and, you know, we really try to practice what we preach. That's beautiful. And I think rare, but what would a center for anxiety be if all of you are feeling anxious and you couldn't take that extra space for self-compassion and scaling down a bit? Indeed. <laughs> So another kind of function of anxiety, if you will, that you mentioned is that it can be a signal that it's time to do some rebalancing and maybe some self-care. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. There's a close cousin of anxiety called stress. And without getting too much into the differences between stress and anxiety, stress is when our demands exceed our resources. So when we have too much to do and not enough time, not enough money, not enough physical space, whatever it is, that will create stress, which is very similar to an anxiety response. And being aware of our stress and rebalancing is an optimal and very healthy approach. Often what happens, people feel stressed out and then they just push harder. Mm. They try to achieve more. Their resources constrain even to a greater extent, their demands continue to multiply. And instead of actually dealing with the problem, which is the imbalance, mm. we just try to keep pushing on, which increases our stress level until it's a breaking point. Yeah. So stress and anxiety can really be a blessing in that it's a signal, hey, something's off here. I'm starting to feel panicky day to day, You know, starting to feel more worried, I need to be more mindful of what I'm taking on, what is truly voluntary, what is truly necessary. Can I scale things back? And also, can I increase my resources through increased sleep, social activity, diet, exercise? What are ways that I can rebalance? If we take anxiety as a cue, it can radically transform our relationship with ourselves in this way as well. So I have to follow this thread. You're saying stress and anxiety are 
different and you defined stress for us. Could you also give us a short definition of anxiety and how it's different? Absolutely. Anxiety is, well, you have to define fear first to get to anxiety. So I'm throwing you a third ball before we uh, deal with the other two. Fear is a real and healthy response to an actual threat mm. life. It involves a surge of adrenaline into the bloodstream and there's a cascade or a change in your physiology, everything from increased heart rate to increased muscle tone, breathing rate increases, your pupils dilate, and all of those are mobilization. So you can deal with the threat. You can either fight against it or you can flee from it or potentially freeze if that's the appropriate thing to do. And that's very healthy and good. Anxiety is also a healthy and positive human process but it occurs when we don't have an actual, real, necessary threat. So it's a misfire mm. of the fear uh, response. Could it also be that maybe the threat is actually a small threat, but we have so many triggers in yoga, we call it vasanas. We have these triggers that are reminding us of something similar in the past. So we kind of have almost an overreaction in our nervous system and our mind. Could that also fall under anxiety? Very much so. That definitely would be anxiety. In fact, often the reason why we're having an anxiety response is because it reminds us of something from the past. But it could also be something that we reminds us of something we learned. We didn't experience it, but we've seen it. Or maybe parents modeled it or other people who, you know, loved ones or caregivers. We saw them, you know, getting overly anxious around, I don't know, whether it's uh, snakes or spiders or whatever it was. So there are multiple pathways to the development of anxiety. And would your book help us to kind of unpack what is anxiety versus what is true fear? Could we start to learn to unpack that? Yes, that's very much what we want to do. And that is definitely spoken about in the book. One of the things that happens, interestingly, when people have anxiety is they tend to avoid thinking about it, dealing with it, facing it, letting it happen to them. And when that happens... When we take that approach of trying to minimize how we feel as opposed to just letting it be, we actually can't unpack it. Yeah. Because we're cutting ourselves off from that data. Is this fear? Is it stress? Is it anxiety? What's going on here? It's like, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel it. I want to stop these emotions now. I want to choke it off. And that is exactly what we do not want to do. But when we allow anxiety to happen to us, then we can unpack it. And then often it can turn into a great blessing. Mm. So let's talk about that. I think this idea of facing it, finding a way to accept that, yes, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on for me versus the kind of desire to push it away and hope it will just go away. Is there a way to get closer to that acceptance? That's a great question. In fact, it's kind of the question. How do we get closer to accepting distress? To me, the question behind it is, what's stopping us going there? What's stopping us from allowing ourselves to experience that distress and anxiety? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a Western societal belief that if we're experiencing distress, if we're upset about something, if we're, our emotions are off, they're not even keeled and happy, tilting in positive, in positive direction the whole time, then something's wrong with us. Mm. And that's a lie. It's just patently false. 
Yeah. All human beings get distressed sometimes. Definitely myself included. We all feel overwhelmed, distressed, anxious, angry, depressed, sad. There's a range of human emotions. And I think we've come to pathologize these states and to see them as medical problems, even in many cases, Mm. when they're just normal human fluctuations. When we reframe it in this way, which I think yoga can frankly help us to do, and many Eastern traditions do espouse this belief that this is part of humanity. Right. It's not as scary to go there. Yeah. I can allow myself to panic or to faint or to feel uncomfortable. And it's not an indication that something's flawed in me. You know, I almost think it's even worse in spiritual or maybe even religious communities because we have this idea that if we are close to God or the universe or the divine, that we're going to be more perfect and we're not going to have those emotions. And so there's this shame that almost comes with admitting that you are human. And what I hear you saying is, look, we just have to get over that idea of perfectionism and just admit that this is the human condition. Yeah, very much so. I haven't met a single human being who has no distress. Mm. <laughs> the only people who are not anxious ever are dead. So you don't want to be that. <laughs> we and, all want to experience distressing emotions at some point because that means that we're alive. Right. Yeah, you could almost think of it as a form of, I wouldn't say vitality, but like, hey, you're alive. You're still feeling this. It's a good sign. So Certainly not an indication of illness. Right. So we've mentioned yoga here. We might as well go to this secret that you shared with me that once you move into acceptance, you can also move towards transcendence. What did you mean by that? Sure. Acceptance, again, is I'm going to feel distressed and anxious and uncomfortable sometimes. I do running, long distance running. It's just not going to be pretty at some point along the course. I know that going into my training. I know that going into a race. It is going to be a mess at some point. And confronting that, accepting it, realizing that it is par for the course is the first step. Once I do that, the distress actually becomes something that I can move past. And when I do that, I am so much stronger for the next race. Mm. because I didn't let it get to me. I can move past it. In anxiety, we do something often called exposure therapy. Do you know anything about exposure therapy? Well, I was just thinking about the neuroscientist, Anna Lemke, who she's been hidden brain recently. And you've got the, the suffering or the pain, and then you've got the joy and the happiness. And if you go too far in either direction, it's almost like gremlins jump on the other side of the seesaw and pull you back so you can get to homeostasis. And so that's kind of what this is reminding me of, that you know that run is going to hurt and you've accepted that as part of the deal and you're doing it anyway. And then what happens? Is that when you transcend it? No, that's a step towards transcendence. Transcendence occurs, I believe, I mean, at least in my book, when we face it and we become stronger having faced it and dealt with it for the next time. Mm. I can run stronger, faster, better, and withstand that pain and difficulty for longer and higher intensity the next run if I've done my homework previously. And is that physiologically and mentally? Yes, very much so. And when it comes to anxiety, it's actually literally both. 
I mentioned exposure therapy before, which is when people face their fears intentionally. Mm. So uh, if you're afraid of spiders, then we call it the spider wrangler and have someone, you know, drop off a tarantula to, to play with in the office. You really do that? Oh my goodness. And we wouldn't start with that. We would start with pictures or videos because it's easier to do. But yeah, we will absolutely bring in some spiders and it's really not pretty. It's a very distressing, upsetting process. But when people have gone through that, they often find themselves more resilient to face any life stressor. It's like, I didn't let my anxiety get to me here and I'm not going to do it in another area of my life with my kids, my spouse, when I'm trying to, a yoga pose that's really challenging for me. Like I become more resilient having faced my fear and not let it get to me. That's really the, the transcendence piece. I'm just, a lot of thoughts are coming to me, but I, I'm wondering, and I hope this isn't a, a question that is offensive, but it seems to me the more privilege and power and comfort I have in my life, the more resources I would have to draw upon to do something like exposure therapy. But if I was already weakened and didn't have internal or external resources, that that would actually maybe not a good situation because I couldn't pull myself to face the spider. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I certainly do. I have a lot of thoughts on that. In some ways, you're 100% correct. In other ways, privilege is actually a risk factor for anxiety. Mm, let's talk about that. Statistically, that is the case. If you look at lower income countries compared to middle income countries, they have half the amount of anxiety. Wow. And middle income countries compared to higher income countries like the United States have half the amount of anxiety. So explain that to us. Is I think it, what, and it sounds strange, like you have the most privileged, technologically advanced, socioeconomically stable, best healthcare. Right. Uh, individuals who have more resources are actually at substantially greater vulnerability for anxiety disorders and dysfunction, right? Yeah. Internationally. So what I think what's going on is when people have more privilege, they're more used to being in control. Mm. And they don't like being vulnerable. They don't like not knowing what's going to happen next. They can't tolerate uncertainty as much. If you're in a war-torn country without a stable economy that, you know, rampant inflation could decimate any funds that you have in a month, you don't know whether food is going to be available. It's almost like you get used to dealing with, I'm completely uncertain about everything in life. I'm not going to be anxious because I've actually become more resilient to deal with this. Now, of course, at a certain point, anxiety is not the problem. We're talking about, you know, poverty and war and other much more serious, frankly, issues. But when it comes to anxiety, I think it's fairly clear that privilege is a risk. <laughs> wow. I think for me, that's the takeaway that having more privilege actually makes you less resilient and possibly Correct. You not have the strength to face the fears because you're right. trying to preserve your comfort. Yes, unless we use that privilege in order to face our fears. So mm -hmm. if we take the opportunity that the privilege affords to be able to build our resilience, whether it's through exposure therapy or through a very rigorous hobby, or whether it's through pushing ourselves and you know, interpersonally to make sure our relationships are in a certain way, whatever it is, it's going to be a challenge. But if we take those resources and use them to face challenges in our lives, to better ourselves and better the world, 
I think we can insulate ourselves against anxiety and other distressing symptoms as well. I love that. That's going to be the takeaway for me. <laughs> so I also want to talk about your, I think it's your co-author, Marissa Silveri. She's a colleague of mine at McLean. Yeah, absolutely. But- and so I had read that she's done this research with these college students who during the pandemic had to switch to online learning. And I think they found that both high dose yoga more often, maybe more intense, more, you know, more sessions and low dose yoga helped the college students to sleep better. Were you part of that paper? First, I want to say Marissa Silveri is a wonderful colleague and uh, she's an incredible neuroscientist who has actually become more of a clinician in the last couple of years. So she's taken all that incredible data that she has about the human brain and is now focusing on building a clinical career to be able to help people. Not that neuroscience doesn't help, but to be able to counsel people as a mental health counselor. And she's just been a wonderful mentor to me and a collaborator in many ways. Marissa, yeah, during the pandemic, she rallied and got the study done and very impressive results. Firstly, that yoga can be delivered through an electronic means was a pretty amazing result in of itself. That and is. secondly, to young people, and thirdly, during a pandemic, you know, there were a lot of challenges implementing the study and the fact that it was possible to even be done, I think speaks to the, the value of yoga and how it can be really engaging from a community level and in many ways, the benefits of it. And sleep during the pandemic was a critical factor in uh, mental health, for, especially for young individuals whose schedules were thrown off like everybody else, but especially for the youth. So the fact that these results were able to target sleep and to help is uh, pretty impressive and I think noteworthy and certainly warrants more research in this area. And you had said a few minutes ago that, you know, the things that are going to combat your ability to kind of deal with anxiety are things like more sleep, social connection, eating well, exercising well. I call that lifestyle medicine. Can you tell us more about that? And is that part of your book? Yes, lifestyle medicine is critical. And often we're very quick to pathologize and to frankly, to medicate when people are distressed, as opposed to looking at what are the factors really contributing to this on a basic level. Mm. And yes, of course it's in the book. Many of my patients come in and I will say, okay, you are desperately low on sleep, right? They are getting four hours, five hours a night before we do any therapy, before we even talk about what's going on. The next two weeks, can we please get between seven and nine hours of sleep on average per night, every night. If they will do that, I can't think of a single patient who actually implemented that and didn't have a very significant reduction in their anxiety over two weeks without even talking to me about anything that was going on. Right. It's kind of the foundation. I feel like it's the time when our nervous system can kind of settle and recover and rest. And if your nervous system is frazzled from no sleep, I agree. How can you do anything? I had another insight which came to me when I was writing the book, and I think somewhat of a spiritual perspective, so I think you'll appreciate it. When we sleep, we are acknowledging that we are not in control. Oh, wow. seven to eight hours a night where I am just not going to be involved. I'm not going to make decisions. I'm not going to send any emails. I'm not returning any phone calls. I'm not paying any bills. I'm off duty and I'm actually surrendering a third of my day, a third of my life. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm giving up that control. And to be able to do that on a regular basis, yes, there is the physiology a hundred percent. And yes, it sort of regulates our system, but 
in many ways. But I think there's also an inculcation of this value of really letting go, which is so critical. I wonder about the mechanisms. Why is it that sleep is so effective? And that was one that came to me when I was writing. I agree with you completely. And we also have these beautiful practices you might've heard of called yoga nidra, the yoga of sleep. And many of us do them during the day too. We'll take that 20 minutes to completely go offline in the middle of the workday and surrender it all for 20 minutes. And it is like plugging your battery in and getting a whole new day started. When you were speaking of that, it reminded like, oh, we can do that during the day too. So... What else have I not talked about that you feel passionate about and you would like to share with us about your work? So much. I think anxiety is the main reason why we're so anxious today is we interpret this as, as a sign that we're flawed or a sign that something's wrong with us as opposed to recognizing that it is a human trait. And when we take the latter approach of just recognizing this is part of who we are, we can actually mine it and turn it into an opportunity to connect with ourselves, to connect with others, and even for spiritual growth. That's what thriving with anxiety is about. I think we also spend a lot of time putting out the fire in terms of treatment as opposed to prevention. That's another reason why I wrote this. How many patients can I see on a weekly basis? How many patients can my clinic see? We currently have a thousand active patients. That's a lot, but compared to the deluge of anxiety that we're seeing on the whole, I think we have to take a more preventive stance on this and giving people the right tools to manage their anxiety so they don't need so they don't need therapy, frankly, or they don't need need treatment, or at least not as much. I agree with you. I taught university for 25 years and all of my classes ended up being teaching kids how to have the tools to manage stress, anxiety. Great. I mean, whether it was a sports psychology class or whatever it was, that's what it came down to, lifestyle medicine and how do you prevent the anxiety? So I've never heard anyone say this before. And I'm really thrilled about your book because it's such a refreshing message that, hey, you can kind of front load this. You can get some money in your bank account to help prevent it instead of trying to figure it out on the back end, which of course you do too, I'm sure. Yes, very much so. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So the book is called Thriving with Anxiety. It's coming out in October, 2023. And who is your publisher? HarperCollins. They've been amazing to work with. I've been very blessed to have them as a publisher and it is available for pre-order. Let me bring that up on screen for our YouTube folks that are watching this on video. David has a website, D-H-R-O-S-M-A-R. RIN.com and basically thriving with anxiety, nine tools to make your anxiety work for you. There's a free sample. There's a pre-order bonus. There's a pre-order now. And oh, in the pre-order bonus, by the way, we talked about Kristen Neff and self-compassion. There's actually a self-compassion assessment that people can take if they order the book. So there's a bonus, which will help you identify how much self-compassion you have and areas for potential future growth there. Fantastic. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so that anyone who wants to check it out and pre-order can. Well, thank you, David, so much for meeting with us today. We're so grateful and we'll be in touch when we're ready to share this with our audience. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you and wish you all the best.
Thank you so much to Dr. Rosemarin for meeting with us today. And some of the really highlights of the podcast today for me, we're really looking at the difference between stress versus fear versus anxiety, stress being kind of when the demands are more larger than our capacity to deal with them, uh, fear being that there's an actual threat and we need to mobilize to meet that threat. And that anxiety is that there's actually not such a real threat, but in our mind there is the perception of threat. So either it's not there and we're imagining it or we're really kind of intensifying it. It's larger than it needs to be to deal with what's in front of us. So that was interesting to look at from a yoga perspective too, because we talk so much about perception and what we call viveka or having clarity and being able to kind of tease out what is anxiety versus what is actually worthy of being fearful about And then when are we having stress? When is the seesaw tipping into a place where we really can't deal with all that's coming at us? So that was a real highlight for me. And then, of course, you all know I love the work of Dr. Kristen Neff on self-compassion and all of her courses. And that, you know, that the very first skill or tool that he listed to deal with anxiety is to learn how to have self-compassion. Phenomenal. I can tell you it has changed my life to admit that I'm having a hard time, to understand that everybody, everyone in a human body has a hard time, and that I can soothe myself and I can pacify those feelings that I'm having that are very normal feelings that everyone has. And somehow those steps that Krista Neff takes us through really have helped me and a lot of my students to change their perspective, the blame and the shame, and I'm not good enough. And how come I can't handle this? And what's wrong with me? And how come I'm not perfect? That whole story just goes away. And we can really focus on, as Dr. Rosemary said, the preventative lifestyle medicine, and we can focus on giving ourselves compassion. And we can focus on leaning into really hard things and doing them anyway, and kind of training ourselves to look at challenges differently instead of, I don't like a challenge, I'm going to lean into the challenge. And I had mentioned the podcast on all the positive things that happen when you just say, hey, I'm going to do something really hard and I know it's going to hurt and it's okay. I'm going to make it through. And that that is what builds resilience over time. And I'm going to have to unpack what he said about privilege and power and how that connects to anxiety and dealing with anxiety. Like that was a mind blowing moment for me to really have something to think about. It was exactly opposite of what I thought he was going to say that people with more privilege tend to have more anxiety, that they're less able to handle the challenges of life in general, of course, unless they're willing to put themselves in uncomfortable situations and feel that anxiety and feel that challenge on a regular basis, which I also thought that was cool. There's so many ways to do that. You can get in an ice bath. You can go for a long run that's going to hurt. You can do a lot of different things to challenge yourself. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week. And just one more appreciation for Dr. Rosemarin joining us today. Thank you so much. 
A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.